You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, it turned out that the only thing that we needed to do to get a, a kick-ass free fight night show was to make sure that uh, you weren't going to be around for it. Oh, is that how you think this works? Yeah, I've, I figured that you have been the problem this whole time. Okay, well, it seems, if nothing, scientific. It's a credit to you, I think, that uh, you decided to sit this one out. Well, you know, I I do feel like the last time I think I missed a UFC event where I wasn't able to watch it live because I had to go do something. I think it was when I was at my brother-in-law's wedding and Ben Rothwell was fighting Alistair Overeem. And, you know, me and Ben Rothwell go way back to the IFL days, so I was checking my phone to see if he won and everything. I was a little bit surprised to even see him knock out Overeem. Then this time, I have to take my wife to a Neutral Milk Hotel concert that I bought her tickets for for Christmas. Um and Ben Rothwell wins again, and again in the first round. I think it, what we can really say here, we have enough body of evidence, is that me not watching Ben Rothwell fight is the best thing that could possibly happen for him. That seems like the kind of thing that you might not want Ben Rothwell to know. I could see him trying to take care of you, if you know what I mean. I mean, or he could just convince me to, to take the night off when he fights. I wouldn't mind doing that. Ben Folks sleeps with the fishes. Off the the icy waters off Kenosha. I don't. Damn it! Why does it have to go just straight there? Well, why the, can I just not watch? What's the over under for the number of times you cried during Neutral Milk Hotel? I'd say like two point five, and I would take the over. Well, yeah, but I was really drunk, so that doesn't count. <laughs> ben, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by DraftKings.com. You've got UFC 188 this weekend live from Mexico City. Seems like a good chance for you MMA super fans to turn your vast wealth of largely useless knowledge into something that might actually make you some money. You can do that this weekend at DraftKings.com. At DraftKings, you could win huge prizes every time you play. Just pick five fighters. Stay under the salary cap and pick up your cash. That's it. Score points for significant strikes, takedowns, advances, knockdowns. You could win your piece of the $1 billion in prizes being awarded this year. These are the biggest daily fantasy MMA contests anywhere, and only DraftKings has, has them. That's pretty cool, but this is even cooler. DraftKings wants to send you on a VIP trip to UFC 189 in Las Vegas. Ben. Tell them how they do that. Well, Chad, you hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code CME to play for free this weekend. You could win the UFC 189 VIP trip to Vegas, which includes travel and accommodations, VIP passes to UFC International Fight Week events, and VIP tickets to UFC 189. Enter CME now at DraftKings.com, DraftKings.com, that's DraftKings.com. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one was what we saw from Dan Henderson on Saturday, akin to a Wild West prospector hitting the mother load and then riding into town with his big score, only to discover that his wagons are loaded to the top with fool's gold. And in round number two, be honest, 
The scariest part of the new UFC drug testing is that this creepy Jeff Nowitzki guy might show up at your house in the middle of the night. Ain't nobody getting back to sleep after that. And in round number three, for the first time since 2010 this weekend at UFC 188, heavyweight champion Cain Velasquez fights somebody other than Junior Dos Santos or Bigfoot Silva. Ben, the last guy he fought before that was? Are you going to tell me? I was seeing if you know. It's like a pop quiz. I, I would just sit back when you do these round parts. I don't participate. Would you believe me if I told you that it was Brock motherfucking Lesnar? I'd believe almost anything. Let that sink in. Okay. Brock Lesnar. I think I, that rings a vague bell. All that? Yeah, you might remember that. It was when Cain Velasquez won the UFC Heavyweight Championship. Ah, no, I was super drunk for that, too. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. I mean, Brock Lesnar, that's... That's astonishing. Was he the one who was... You remember him, Flat Top? Okay, did he Knows fight Fedor on weights? New Year's Eve? <laughs> yes, that was him. Okay. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Trevor Loden. He writes, Ask me five years ago when Gilbert Melendez versus Eddie Alvarez would have been considered a can't-miss super fight. What do you think of it taking place in 2015? Well, I'll tell you exactly what I think. Tell us. I think it's going to be kind of awesome. And it's going to be too... Uh, high-level, all-action fighters who both pretty badly need a win as the co-main event of a pay-per-view where in the main event we're going to have a heavyweight unification fight. I'll take that walking away. Yeah, I did. I, I guess I did not consider exactly like trying to put this in the context of how it would have seemed five years ago. Well, in fairness, that seems like, and, and I'm not picking on Trevor Loden here, but like that seems like something that a lot of people are doing. And it's easy to do with this fight because I think that back in the day there were rumors uh, back when uh, Melendez was the Strike Force champ and uh, Alvarez was the Bellator champ for like three years, from like 2009 to 2011, where I was, I think, the time that their reigns overlapped, there were rumors that they would that they would do the damn thing, that they would have like a cross promotional super event that these guys would fight at. And in fact, Gilbert Melendez says that he he kind of like tried to pick a fight with Alvarez, uh, or at least suggested that they should fight, and that Alvarez took that as an insult. Um, so you know, it's not necessarily uh, unusual that people would cast this fight in that context that this was one we could have had a few years ago and it would have been a super fight and now it is merely seems like a super fight uh but see what you do. but that's also like kind of a weird thing to do right to be like oh man if only when you are actually going to watch the actual fight in about <laughs> five days uh you mentioned how they both kind of need a win here who do you think needs a win worse uh, you know what? I actually think Eddie Alvarez needs the win yeah, uh, more because Gilbert Melendez, he's one and two since coming over uh, to the UFC, but two, both of his losses, one was to Ben Henderson. The other one is to Anthony Pettis in, uh, in title fights. And, uh, he had that, that barn burner with Diego Sanchez that was, uh, you know, fight of the night. And, and some people said a fight of the year candidate, um, and he's still ranked, I think, like number four in the UFC light, lightweight division. So, like, I think either of these guys survives a loss here. But at the same time, Eddie Alvarez, man, he's had such a tough road, both with injuries and the contract uh, snafu that he got into with Bellator. And then when he finally showed up in the UFC to fight Donald Cerrone, holy cow, did he look small. And, yeah. like, kind of, I don't want to say outclassed, but, like, uh, you know, back in the days when we were talking about, uh, you know, him being in a super fight with Gilbert Melendez, you would think that that he would beat the tar out of a guy like Donald Cerrone. And then he shows up 
And once he actually gets there, kind of the opposite is true. So he needs this, I think, to pursue, preserve the the notion of him as as a, an elite lightweight. Yeah, you're right. And I, that's why I thought it was kind of weird because if you look at it on paper, you know, Melendez is one and two in the UFC. Uh, but as you said, you know, one of them, him looking pretty good in that title fight against Henderson uh, and even him looking pretty good uh, early on against Anthony Pettis. Um, and Alvarez has only lost that one fight. But it does seem like if Alvarez loses 2-0, and oh, He's in danger of having that kind of narrative just take hold where, oh, wait a minute, this guy wasn't really good enough for the UFC to compete with these lightweights after all, Um, which would really be a shame, too, because as you mentioned, like then people might start to wonder, wait a minute, did he spend the best years of his career uh, either in Bellator or arguing in court with Bellator? Because that would be a damn shame. It would be. Um, And I think that part of that uh, narrative about us having kind of missed the window when this would have been a better fight uh kind of overplays a little bit how down and out of it these guys are like you know they're both probably making the turn toward the back nine of their careers i guess you would say but uh melendez is only like 33 and and alvarez i think is 31 something like that so it's not like they're completely over the hill and now that you know the light heavy or the lightweight title has been getting passed around like a hot potato like pretty much everybody kind of has new life in the in the 155 pound division right now because you know, with uh, Rafael Dos Anjos as, as your champion, I don't think it's out of the question to think that the winner of this fight could find himself in a title eliminator next. Yeah, it is a little more wide open these days. Next question uh, this week comes to us from David Kimball. He writes, so Big Ben Rothwell, eh? He's fast become one of my favorite fighters. He's everything a heavyweight cage fighter should be, but largely isn't these days. Firstly, he looks the part, like he's been chopping wood in Grandma's shed in the wilds of Wisconsin all winter, and now that it's warmer, he's been let out to crack some heads for the season. Secondly, he sounds the part. John Anik's face during the in-cage interview was undulated, was an undulating picture of fear mixed with wonder. <laughs> and Big Ben's voice and shtick, is it a shtick? Who knows? Are straight from central casting. I love it. Thirdly, the way he lumbers around the cage like a befuddled bear in a pit, slowly, <laughs> inexorably, and... <laughs> With very little regard for whatever thunderous blows are danced upon his bald head. Until wow, this is like the best written listener mail hairy, question ever. Those hairy great arms get a hold of the poor sap in front of him and he just beats the living crap out of the guy. That's what we all want, right? Frankly, I have no idea where this particular bandwagon is headed. Does anyone really think a rematch with Kane is in the cards? But damn it, I'm on board for the ride. You guys with me? Bravo, David Kimball. Yeah, nice work there by by David Kimball. Like uh, a befuddled bear in a pit. Very little regard for whatever thunderous blows are danced upon his bald head, Chad. You wish you could write like David Kimball. Oh, boy, Kimball. do I. Uh, we were talking about this before we started recording the podcast because, obviously, Ben Rothwell is one of your guys. As you said, you guys go back back to the IFL and, and uh, a little warm spot on Team Folks to see him get a win here. Uh, tell me about your reaction to the post-fight interview. Well, you know, it was one of those things like I had heard that something weird happened way before I saw it. It wasn't until Sunday morning that I sat down uh, just amid the, the cloud of a hangover to watch and see what actually happened. And, man, I didn't, I didn't think it was going to go that way, especially the evil laugh. Like yeah, the laugh really put it over the top. Yeah, you don't you don't often see somebody laugh in a way where when you type out ha it actually feels like onomatopoetic. It's really indicative of what actually happened. Yeah. And like that hand gesture that he clearly has like that's that like a signature hand gesture now. Doesn't 
doesn't look quite how I think he imagines it to look in his mind. That's what I wondered as well. Um, but he's he, – I realized afterwards, and I, I talked about this in one of my videos this week, that he's totally right when he says that you know you got to make some noise to stand out. Um, that totally works, man. We're all talking about it because when you look, go back and look at the fight itself – Especially on this fight card, it's not like it was the most exciting fight or like the most impressive uh, finish. I mean, you finish a guy in the first round, you, you can't be unhappy with that, I guess. But at the same time, like there's a lot of crazy awesome stuff that happened on this fight card. And having finding a way to stand out in something like that is, is difficult. And even if he did it in a way where people are just like, holy shit, that was weird. It totally worked. Absolutely worked. Yeah, and, and on top of all that, it was a fight where it seemed like he was getting touched up a little bit on the feet by Matt Matrione. Uh, and, not, you know, not necessarily, he wasn't clearly on the verge of losing that fight or anything, but when Matrione shot for that uh, uh, takedown, it seemed kind of ill-advised. Yeah. And uh, I guess the the main positive thing that I take out of this um, about Ben Rothwell, and I think it's one of the things that you wrote about him after you went to see the gym that he recently opened uh, in Kenosha is that he seems like he's improved in some areas like that. Uh, you know, the, the choke that he got on, on Mitrione there was impressive and fast and it appears not to be comfortable to have those hairy, great arms wrapped around your throat because Mitrione went ahead and did the tap with both hands yeah. like a bird flapping its wings <laughs> on uh, Ben Rothwell's back, which is not not a kind of tap that you see very often there. But, I mean, I think you could make the case that Rothwell got kind of fortunate that Mitrione made that what I guess in retrospect you could say seems like a bad tactical move and shooting in for a takedown when he was kind of uh, winning the stand-up battle there. Hey, you could say that Fedor got fortunate that Andre Olovsky decided to go for that flying knee and get himself knocked right the hell out, but that it happened, you know, and that's the way it goes. Um, and speaking of Andre Olovsky, I think uh, it's kind of a genius move on Ben Rothwell's part to, to call out Arlovsky at this time because he had that first fight with him uh, in affliction and it was kind of... Andre Olovsky on his way to that that Fedor fight that he was looking really good back then and kind of took it to Rothwell uh, and now is kind of when you want to call out Andre Olovsky for that rematch if you're Ben Rothwell don't you I mean he he, he looks like right now Arlovsky has that kind of resurgent force that's captured our imaginations and made us think holy shit 2015 and Andre Olovsky is a player in the UFC heavyweight division we never thought that was going to happen if you're Rothwell you also probably feel like you have a probably a, a better chance of beating him now uh, and it seems like you win that one in the heavyweight division as it is now that's probably puts you in a title fight next does it not uh, well you'd certainly be quote-unquote in the mix so yeah it is it is a uh kind of a crazy like a fox situation for Ben Rothwell uh I think making some good strategic moves he also appeared on the MMA hour today before we recorded this uh and though he made sure to say the words I'm not implying anything sure made it sound like he's implying that he thinks that Cain Velasquez is on PEDs here's his quote he said let's see what happens after July 1st when the advanced uh testing drug testing starts kicking in let's see if Velasquez is still fighting the same way he has I doubt it I'm not implying anything what I'm just what I'm just saying I just saying Chad, he's just, saying. just saying I don't believe every division is going to look the same after July 1st if anyone takes offense to that maybe they ought to look at themselves and look at their own problems oh wow so I don't even know what the end of that is supposed to mean there's exactly. a lot there's a lot to unpack in that quote as you like to say Su suffice to say Ben Rothwell who himself 
uh, once was on the TRT appears to be coming out throwing them murder balls at people these days. How do you how do you get away with saying I'm not implying anything there? That's as as much as you could possibly imply without outright saying that you think Cain Velasquez is on PEDs. Uh, well, I mean, I think saying I'm not implying anything. Because I'm just straight out saying it? Uh, well, it's sort of like saying, like, all due respect or something, <laughs> or, you know, it's like you wouldn't even need to say that were you not actually implying something. Yeah. We would just not know that you were implying it. Well, and while I agree with the basic... Uh, thesis that not all the divisions are going to look the same once that drug testing gets going. Uh, I think he's right about that. But I don't know that Cain Velasquez at heavyweight is the one that I see having be or being profoundly altered by that. You hear about a lot of guys, you hear rumors about a lot of guys. And like we've said before, almost anybody could pop positive at this point and it wouldn't be terribly shocking because we're so cynical and dead inside. Thank you, Anderson Silva. Uh, but that one, I... I would think that you just don't hear anybody talking about how they think that Cain Velasquez is, is is anything other than kind of a genetic freak. Right, yeah. His his thing is that he's Cardio Cain, right? One of the more regrettable uh, nicknames in the sport right uh, now. Did you hear John Anik calling Ben Rothwell King of Kenosha? I think that's better than Cardio Cain. Well, I think we all know they ran the last king out of Kenosha in 682 <laughs> AD. Uh, you know, the, I, if... Let's just say, hypothetically, Cain Velasquez were to test positive for something. I think we would all look in the rear view and be like, oh, so this guy's thing was that he goes out there and has way better cardio than everybody else. Well, I guess that makes sense. That said, like you said, there's no smoke around Cain Velasquez. There's no real uh, substantive rumor or like, uh, you know, anything to to imply that that he would be on PED. So um, I don't know. Maybe this is just part of Ben Rothwell trying to get noticed again. (laughs) <laughs> playing that character that he's concocted. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Adam from London, Ontario. He writes, I guess they didn't need it after all. One thing that struck me about Saturday night's fight cars with the, was that three of the major winners are recent PED users who have presumably stopped using after being caught or having their TUEs taken away. Ben Rothwell with testosterone in 2013. Brian Ortega for Drostanalone. Uh, did I say that right? Did I nail that one? Close enough. Drost- Josh Stanalone in July, and of course Dan Henderson with the TRT. Does this prove that fighters don't really need these PEDs as much as they thought? Is it possible that the UFC's new drug testing policy will force fighters to get off the juice but not necessarily decrease the quality of performances? I realize that we recently saw Vitor Belfort looking like a shell of his former self, but perhaps he is the exception rather than the rule. Please discuss. Um, I mean, I guess I would open the discussion by saying these guys wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't working, if it wasn't doing at least something for them. And I think Vitor Belfort is probably the most stark example of a guy uh, who appears to be a world beater when he's all fired up on his medicine and then shows up looking like something completely different uh, when he, he does it on natural, as we are, I guess, assuming that he is. However, like... Um, I don't know that that uh, the most guys could probably go out there and do with without it. You know, like uh, one of the interesting things about that Mark Kerr interview that we that was linked to from the Breakfast of Champions last week, especially in the video that that he did with with 
uh, Bobby Rozick was was talking about his own PED use in the past, and when he came first came into the UFC, uh, you look back now and you look at, and it's just like wow, he you know he could have been holding a sign yeah. that said roids, but uh, he was it was in the form of his traps, yeah. which came out of his ears. So and and then you know he his point kind of was he got all gassed up because he didn't know really what to expect in yeah, these M- out of fear kind in of. these yeah. MMA fights. Uh, and the reasons for doing it might be a little bit different now, maybe some the same too. I don't know. But like he said that eventually he realized he didn't really need it and kind of transitioned off steroids. So maybe, maybe there's a valid point to be made that, uh, that the, this, you know, maybe it's more of a psychological impact than anything else. Um, and maybe guys who are on the stuff could be just as good without it. Um, and I hope that a lot of people getting off of it, if that, if that's what's about to happen, uh, doesn't decrease the quality of performances, but also if it does, I honestly don't really care, man. I'm ready to accept a different sport if it means that the sport is cleaner. Yeah, a few, a few, fewer dingers out there uh, in in the baseball terms, and you know, hey, it doesn't necessarily ruin the game. I, I see what you're saying there. I also think a lot of these guys who are doing it, I don't know if they were necessarily doing it so much because they thought it would directly translate into the performances in the cage. Uh, as much as they were doing it to help them get through tough training camps, which just might mean that they need to restructure how they do training camps a little bit. Uh, that, But I also, I don't know if we want to necessarily make the leap to like, well, hey, these guys who ha- were either known to have done stuff or got caught doing stuff, and then they came out there and they won one fight, therefore everything is fine. I mean, for one thing, we don't even know for sure if they got on off of it. I mean, it's we're recording this on Monday. We could always get the the, the test results here in a week or two and, and find out that maybe they weren't off it at all, or maybe they weren't off and didn't get caught. You know, you don't necessarily know about that. So I'm not gonna read too far into it just from from one fight from each one of those guys. And like you said, we have seen that that effect work the other way. Alistair Overing was another guy who showed up looking noticeably different after getting busted and fought different, at least for a little while. So um, I don't know. I don't know how much we can really interpret from that. Last question this week comes to us from Andrew Millington. He writes, so Lusty Gusty gets a title shot off a loss against a man who won the title following a loss. What the actual fuck, you guys? However, couldn't a, Gu- couldn't a Gustafson win maybe help some fans feel more at ease in Jones' absence? Many people, not me, felt Gustafson won the fight against Jones, so excuse the armchair matchmaking, but say Gustafson beats Cormier, who lost to Jones emphatically rather than slightly, he'd be a title holder who was more than competitive with the man who last held the gold. We'd get the rematch we'd been asking for upon Jones's return. DC gets to squash his beef with Bader and probably his skull as well and then DC gets to continue his feud with Jones later. All sounds good to me, except that Rumble would be left to smash some poor fool outside the top ten. Discuss. So yeah, Ben, a lot of uh, kind of, I guess, I don't know if you'd say unexpected, but I was a little bit surprised at the level of backlash this past week when it was announced that uh, Alexander Gustafson will probably be Daniel Cormier's first title defense as the standing UFC light heavyweight champion. Uh, a lot more Ryan Bader fans out there than you than you might have thought a few months ago. Yeah, see, that's what I thought was weird about it because I can understand, you know, it is weird to have a guy who gets knocked out in the first round and then his next fight is for the title. Uh, but these are weird times at light heavyweight. Yes, you were dealing with an unprecedented set of circumstance, I yeah. would say. And so I, that's what I wonder is like these people, do they do they really want to see that Ryan Bader, Daniel Cormier fight? Or are they just like kind of objecting to this on principle? 
Because for me, especially since John Jones is just not around, and we've talked about this before, that it seems like, okay, you can fight for the UFC light heavyweight belt, but you're not necessarily fighting to see who's the best light heavyweight in the world. Those seem like two different things right now. Uh, I don't mind seeing Cormier and Gustus, and that seems like an interesting fight, a good fight on paper. I watched that fight, and if you ask me like which fight I'm more uh, eager to pay for, I will say Cormier Gustafson over Cormier Bader. And I think that most of the people complaining would probably say the same thing. They just don't like the the idea of it. Yeah. Um, and again, I come back to this kind of unprecedented set of circumstances. You just had a situation where the top light heavyweight fighter in the world was taken off the table. And then in the scramble to kind of follow up on that unexpected move, you had to have the number one contender in Rumble Johnson fight Daniel Cormier, the guy who just fought for the title. Um, so what you essentially did was take your top three contenders or you took your champion and your top two contenders and kind of used them up in right in a row. And in a division that's as shallow as the light heavyweight division, that puts you in kind of a bind. And so under the circumstances, I think that the right fight to make, in fact, is Alexander Gustafson against Daniel Cormier. Uh, just because, you know, what you were saying, this is at the end of the day, a business um, we, you know, I don't think anyone would make the argument that even though he lost recently to Anthony Johnson, I don't think anybody would make the argument that Alexander Gustafson isn't one of the top light heavyweights in the world. Certainly it's a, a more marketable and saleable fight than having DC fight Ryan Bader. Um, so I'm totally cool with it. I think it's the right move. Frankly, I also understand people who want to make the case for Ryan Bader just because he's won four fights in a row. Uh, I guess the counterpoint to that would be just to say Anthony Parash, Rafael Cavalcante, Ovin St. Pru, and a split decision against Phil Davis. That's Ryan Bader's four-fight win streak, uh, which, you know, is a four-fight win streak, but I'm also not sure that that win streaks are created equal, nor do I think that they're the end-all, beat-all in, in trying to determine who gets a title shot, especially in this division where, uh, at least for a while now, you're going to be making it up as you go. Plus, hey, if this uh, rallies people to the Ryan Bader cause, if you get a hashtag rally for Ryan Bader out of this, that's kind of like the biggest boost Ryan Bader has ever had in his career, is it not? Yeah, and then, I mean, they were already talking about Ryan Bader against uh, Rashad Evans in September. If that's the guy Rashad Evans wants to fight coming off his protracted injury absence. And like, man, if you're Ryan Bader and you want to make your case as a as a potential title challenger, go beat Rashad Evans. I think that that frankly strikes me as kind of a perfect idea and once you have the hashtag behind you i don't you can't be stopped no. at that point it's it's title shot or bust yep for ryan bader well that's going to do it for listener mail this week if you have a question a comment a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks you know how to do it you go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us while you're there you can sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from monday to friday when we're not recording a podcast it does it in kind of a humorous way kind of a funny way uh it's free you'll like it if you don't like it you can cancel at any time or just sit there and let the breakfast of champions email pile up in your work email i'm kind of surprised how many people appear to get the boc in their work emails because we get an awful lot of those uh out of the office automatic replies nice from people when we send out the boc uh every friday morning and uh i don't know man that just kind of surprises me that I don't know. Maybe I don't know that I would necessarily want to have that on my screen when the boss comes <laughs> in 
real i mean let's be honest just i don't reading think, profanities i don't think there's a whole lot of like you know so and so at nasa.org wow. uh, emails being what sent into indictment. the DOC. come on jeez you guy with a low opinion of his listeners over here it's it's realistic jeez wow we're going to get some mail about that anyway it's time for us to move on to round number 1 that's going to happen right now Round one of the co-main event podcast is presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love. NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It doesn't get any better than that. NASM guarantees that you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them about the internet offer. Well, Chad, you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at myusatrainer.com. That's myusatrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See myusatrainer.com for details. Well, Ben, Dan Henderson still hits really hard. We, as we learned in the main event of UFC Fight Night 68 last Saturday night, capping off the best free night of fights that we'd seen in a long time, Dan Henderson came out there and KO'd Tim the Barbarian Boach in 28 seconds at the Smoothie King Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. Little tear fall down your face to see your guy, Tim Boach, going it's down. It's hard to watch a barbarian cry. Yeah. And uh, it, it looked like Tim Boach was going to take it pretty hard there. Uh, in the I backstage area, traffic at the barbarian TV just nosedive. Yeah, we sh we shut it down. We just went ahead and shut her down. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we're th we're thinking about trying to get up maybe at a dot org or a dot edu. Okay, so we'll see what happens. Class it up. Um, I'm not sure where exactly to start here with uh, Dan Henderson at uh, age 44, going to turn 45 this summer. Now back in the win column. Uh, he had lost his two previous fights, headed into this, and is just one. Well, now he's two and five, uh, dating back to the beginning of 2013. Um, a lot of people seem to be advancing for us the thesis that perhaps this is a bad thing for Dan Henderson, that this is just going to, uh, as it often does with aging athletes, convince them that they still got it and they can go on uh, and fight more, which I think is probably a valid point. Though if Dan Henderson wants to do it, I'm not sure anybody is going to stand in his way. I guess to open up the discussion, Ben, what on earth would you do with Dan Henderson right now coming out of this victory? Yeah, you know, I I was thinking about the idea that this might be the worst thing that could happen to him. First round victory that recharges him and convinces him that he's got plenty left in the tank. The thing with Dan Henderson, though, is that I just don't feel like he was thinking of this in terms of like, well, if I lose, then I'll start looking hard at retirement. Like I, I think you're probably, you're going to have to make him go away. And the problem, if you're the UFC right now is if you drop Dan Henderson, shit, he goes over there and fights Kimbo and would watch Chad. You yes. know that hashtag would watch. I was on, on for a minute there when after he had 
polished off Tim Boach and he was in there shaking his hand a little bit, I was like, okay, maybe that's the best thing that could happen. He gets a big knockout and maybe what if he broke his hand really badly and had to have surgery and was off for a really long time and then just kind of aged out. Like once his hand was finally ready to go, by then he had gotten into some big project staining his deck and wanted to get that out of the way. Uh, and then, you know, one of his kids was going to graduate from college or something and he wanted to be around for that. And then maybe next thing you know, you just never get around to getting back in the cage. Uh, and then I realized that too is an unrealistically optimistic scenario. He's just going to talk about how all he needs are a couple few beers and that hand will be fine. I don't know, man. I just think that Dan Henderson is going to keep doing this as long as somebody's going to sign their name to a check for Dan Henderson to get up in there in the cage and fight somebody. And that's just something we're all going to have to live with. Yeah, Dan Henderson appears to treat a broken hand the way that I treat, like maybe not being able to find my car keys or something in the morning, <laughs> where it's just kind of like, oh, damn, I think I, I think I broke my damn hand again. <laughs> uh, I can't remember who first floated this idea with somebody on Twitter, but talking about the possibility of a Dan Henderson-Michael Bisping rematch, which I don't think that that's a bad idea. Bisping's back in the win column. He went out and beat C.B. Dalloway at UFC 186, uh, and, uh, you know, Dan Henderson is now back in the win column, and obviously uh, the thing that sort of follows Michael Bisping's career at this point is that streak where he lost to Dan Henderson and then Vanderlei Silva and then Chael Sonnen and then Vitor Belfort. Uh, not, not a streak, I guess, since it took him about five years to do all that stuff, but, like, he, he appeared to run up against every uh, TRT and, and perhaps PEDs user in the sport, uh, and came out on the wrong end a few times. So now that, that, uh, Dan Henderson has been required to get off the sauce and, and Bisping is certainly on the record saying he doesn't think Henderson could beat him if they fought now. Uh, I wouldn't be that opposed to that kind of fight. No, I wouldn't either. I, I was kind of surprised a little bit to see Tim Kennedy, uh, calling him out. It seemed like, like a lot of guys out there in the middleweight division right now might think that Dan Henderson is, is the, the weak and sick and old gazelle in the herd that you could pick off kind of easily. And that it act, now that he went out there and got a first round win, you could do so with a little bit of honor and get a little bit of a, of a shine to your own name in the process. But you're right. I think like a fight, like Tim Kennedy, I would like to see fight somebody a little higher up the, the totem pole. Whereas Dan Henderson and Michael Bisping, you can kind of see like it has that sort of payback element to it. And it, it does make you wonder, right? Like, if you had to fight Michael Bisping clean, how does that one go? Because it could very easily just go the same way where he lands that one big right hand and it's lights out. Or it could be a, a long night of payback for Michael Bisping. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would watch that one. I would also, if I were Michael Bisping, I would be suspicious the moment they tried to give me that fight. Because that would signal to me that they might have given up on my ongoing dream of fighting for a UFC title because it doesn't seem like a fight that necessarily moves you closer in that direction if you're Bisping. Yeah, that's probably a valid point. You know who thought that uh, Dan Henderson was the aging gazelle that he was going to go out there and run over? That would be Mr. Tim Boach. Yeah. Uh, I thought this while the fight was happening and you know everyone who listens to this show knows we're not necessarily uh, X's and O's guys. There are people in this business that break down strategery and fight tactics a lot better than we do. We don't talk about that kind of stuff a lot. But um, I thought it was kind of a weird game plan for Tim Boach. Uh, and they talked about it during the broadcast. Brian Stan had talked to Tim Boach, I think, before the fight. And that Boach's strategy was that he was going to, quote, unquote, come out and get in Dan Henderson's face and push him. And I thought to myself, that sounds like the only way that Dan Henderson is going to have a chance to knock you out. And it 
that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. It, re- it reminded me, in fact, of when Dan Henderson fought uh, Fedor right. back in 2011. Yeah. And it seemed like Fedor opted for the only strategy that could possibly lose him a fight against Dan Henderson. And that was to sprint straight into the teeth of Dan Henderson's offense and eventually... Uh, he got knocked out in four minutes and 12 seconds. But, and, you know, and maybe this is just like reading too much into it. When Fedor did it, it seemed to come from a place of fuck it. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, just going to go after it. When when Tim Boach did it, it seemed like he thought that that was a good idea, like that that was a good strategy, was that you want to basically get in his face and roughneck him a little bit, which I wouldn't necessarily argue that that's a bad idea in round two. Like, I think with Dan Henderson, I want to spend round one letting him throw that right hand a little bit, letting him wear himself out a little bit, which you know that he has on occasion done, especially if you're wondering how he's going to perform off the TRT. I would, and you got a five round fight to work with. If I'm Tim Boach, I want to win that puppy in round three, four, and five. Uh, I don't want to go out there and try to just rush him uh, in the first round. Uh, but, you know, I. It's easy to, to, I guess, sit here and, and talk about that, but uh, it did seem like a questionable strategy, and it also felt like it robbed us of really getting to find out too much about Dan Henderson because, yeah, if you walk into his right hand, you can you can lose. We kind of knew that already. I don't feel like we really got a chance to find out anything new about what's going on with Dan Henderson these days. Yeah, we are armchairing it a little bit here, but I mean, Dan Henderson only pretty much has that one weapon at this point, right? He's going to come out and try to uh, wing the right hand. It seems to me like you would kind of want him to come to you with that instead of going out there to quote unquote try to roughneck him in the first round. Anyway, Tim Boach himself drops to two and five now. He's lost back to back fights, one to uh, Talis Latis and now to Dan Henderson. I think that that probably. Uh, does it for him as a potential contender uh, in the middleweight division. Seems like an awful long time ago that he'd won those four fights in a row and, and capped it with that split decision over Hector Lombard. So maybe just we're getting back to the uh, the natural order of things here a little bit. I don't know that uh, besides we members of the Barbarian Horde, I'm not sure that anyone was, was ever really buying Tim Boach as uh, the future of the 185-pound division. So he's got some work to do now, I guess, to get back in the hunt and he himself is 34 years old. So uh, we may have seen the last of him as, as a potential elite guy, title contender type individual. When you say we, the members of the barbarian horde, who are you referring to exactly? Me, me and you. I whoa, listed, whoa, whoa, whoa. I listed whoa. you as the treasurer on uh, the official treasurer. when I had to fill out the uh, 501 well, C4, whatever it is. That explains these weird letters I'm getting from the IRS. Uh, ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two uh, this week. Ben, this week my Are You Fucking Kidding Me has to go out to Brian Ortega, uh, who got a win this past weekend against Tiago Tavares. First of all, for continuing to carry around the somewhat awkward nickname of quote-unquote T-City after testing positive for steroids in his last fight. You and I were talking about that before we went on the air, and, and we theorized that T-City might refer to Torrance. California. I've never heard Torrance referred to that way, but okay. But also, the real Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week, because of his epic post-fight interview after finishing off Tavares, a uh, few things, Ben, creep me out more than staring into the frighteningly blank face of the true believing fighter as he 
vociferously thanks God for helping him beat another man senseless. Turns out Brian Ortega was getting some pretty specific instructions from the man upstairs during this fight. A couple of choice cuts from his post-fight interview with John Anik. First of all, quote, I pulled out that win because God came in me. Oh, okay. At that time, God went in me and said, finish it, Brian. And we did. We did. Then, talking about Tiago Tavares bleeding into bleeding on him during the fight, he said, dude, like he was on top of me and his blood went right in my mouth and I was like, ugh. <laughs> it was so warm, you know? God. But we have to keep going. We have to keep fighting. Are you fucking kidding me, Brian Ortega? Are you trying to join Team Dundas? <laughs> because if you keep having awesome fights and then you show up to your post-fight interview acting like the main character in a Hold Steady song... You just might get there, my friend. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Uh, I'm I'm running a check right now to see if tcity.com is available for okay, you. Okay, yes, that's um, excellent. I will list you as the treasurer. Okay, you know he's right though about it is like I, the thing about the blood being warm. I've thought that sometimes too is the grossest thing about like getting thrown up on by a baby is you're just like you already think it's going to be gross, and then when it happens, you're like. I didn't expect it to be so warm, but of course it is, and that's the grossest thing about it. Uh, but Chad, this week, my, are you fucking kidding me, goes out to the big homie Sean Jordan. Oh. Heavyweight. Yes. Going to go up in there against the black beast, Derek Lewis, uh, he who popularized the Matt Matrione uh, nickname. And throw a damn hook kick to the head, mm-hmm. like just, for the people of Louisiana. Like the big man just just rolled up in a strip mall karate studio class, watched for about five minutes, and was like, "I can do that." Then goes out there and actually uses it to help him set up the ending of a heavyweight fight in the UFC. Are you fucking kidding me? That's awesome. Are you fucking kidding me? You know what? In defense of Derek Lewis, though. Nobody goes into a heavyweight fight, particularly one against Sean Jordan, being like, strategy number one, avoid the hook kick. Defend against the Defend hook Defend the hook kick. So Also, the, the crane kick uh, from Karate Kid. Got to watch out for that one, too. Uh, and don't rule out a, a, a Din Mach. I mean, you just you got to be prepared for everything in there. You got a better chance of a piece of space junk falling out of the sky and crushing you than getting a hook kicked by Sean Jordan, I would think. Well, and the moment right after it hit Derek Lewis in the face where he just stopped cold and then stumbled backwards, that was the the blank look on his face. That was the look of a man who was like there was I was sure there was no way this was going to happen. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chen, it is time to clean up your act. A new sheriff is coming into town. The the law is going to be broughten on all these UFC fighters sometime after July 1st. We heard the UFC talking about how it wanted to, to get serious about drug testing. The last week's announcement of a partnership with USADA, one of the more uh, respected uh, anti-doping agencies out there, uh, confirms that the UFC is really doing this thing. Uh, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but USADA's 
taken pretty seriously in that space, and it seems like they're actually going to do the kind of stuff that we've been saying for a long time needs to happen. So I guess the question is, how profoundly does this change the UFC and, and its culture? Wow, that's a great question. Um, this is the thing, pretty much the exact thing that we've been wishing and hoping that the UFC would do for several years now, as you mentioned. So I guess you got to give them their props for that, man. You know, coming in with a, a third party who's going to handle the testing, claiming that they're going to be uh, that the UFC power structure is going to be hands off in, in, uh, at least handling the testing, maybe, uh, adjudicating the results. I don't know. Uh, it all sounds very good, man. And, and frankly, let me just say maybe the most professional UFC press conference in history when you got Edwin Moses and Travis Tigert and, uh, Jeff Nowitzki all up there talking about drug testing and the, the yelling is kept to a minimum. Uh, Lorenzo Fertitta and Dana White talk some, but, but, but not a lot. Uh, the question you ask, I think, is a profound one, though, because as we wrote in the BOC this past week, it seems like even the UFC br brass knows that this has the potential to be a real huge pain in their in their ass. Uh, and so it could profoundly change the culture of the sport. I guess uh, you your hope for this drug testing program wouldn't be that they you don't want them to catch everybody because right. then then you're in some trouble. Uh, you also don't want them to catch nobody because right. then you got a different kind of problem. But exactly how this plays out, um, man, I think we're just going to have to wait and see it. I mean, I'll be real honest with you from a fan perspective and the perspective of a guy who wants to see a clean mixed martial arts. It sounds, frankly, too good to be true. And we'll see how it works in practice. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I think is going to be a big key is going to be when they catch somebody before a fight, like a, you know, a big fight coming up, and they show up in their training camp six weeks out, uh, and then is it going to be the same situation that we've had before where we hear about it right after the fight, um, just conveniently a few days right after the fight? Or is it going to be a situation where USADA tells, steps in and says, hey, we caught this guy uh, before the fight, that fight's off? Because um, you know that the UFC is going to be tempted to try to find some way to make those fights still happen since that's the way they make money. Uh, that I think is going to be like, eventually that's going to happen. And that's going to be a real test. That's going to tell us, uh, exactly, you know, how serious to take this thing. But I think the, the deterrent power that it has is what, what should, or what has the greatest power to, to change the culture. Because it's one thing before where, you know, if you're fighting in certain jurisdictions, you don't really have to worry about it too much, or you're fighting and you know, you can circle the date on the calendar. Those are kind of easy tests to beat. As long as there's always that threat. That USADA is just going to show up and or just going to call you up and tell you that they need to test you. I think that's going to make a lot of people think twice. And I think that some of those people are probably still going to feel like, you know, they're probably just in the habit of thinking that they can beat this stuff and that there is no serious drug testing. Or some of them maybe feel like we talked about before, that psychological element where they don't think they can uh, get off of it and compete clean and be the same people. But I think that now you have to worry about that. And it also gives us the thing, you know, like before it would be if a fight was in a certain place. There was no way for us to really know that we could feel totally certain that they were clean or at least even reasonably certain because it was just like, well, you're not going to get the kind of testing there that you want. Now this gives, I think, the fans a little more of a peace of mind that like, hey, you know, it's not going to catch 100% of cheaters. It might not be perfect, but it's way better than what we had. And it gives us gets us a lot closer to feeling like uh, we're looking at a clean, legitimate sport. Yeah. And you get the impression that somebody's going to catch a bad one. 
before yeah. the message fully hits home. Like somebody who knows who it's going to be, but somebody's going to catch a two year suspension at some point. And it might be a person that we had high hopes for. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I think anybody who has listened to this show over the past two years knows that this is the kind of thing that you and I have been hoping for. I think it's the kind of drug testing you need in this sport at this point, uh, just to kind of continue to legitimize it. Uh, I, I wrote on Bleacher Report last week that that it seems like a glorious idea. I called it a triumph. However, I also pointed out in that article that I wrote last week, if I were a UFC fighter, I would start to wonder at some point how much power the UFC can exert over my life and maintain my position of employment as an independent contractor because, you know, you don't have a seat at the bargaining table. You don't have a seat at the, in any of the real negotiations about this stuff. Uh, and now you have to be kind of on the hook 365 days a year, notifying the UFC, if you're going to travel, if you're going to take the kids to Disney world, whatever. Uh, and you know, that would, I would start to wonder at some point, like how far this goes, how far does their authority extend, especially with some of the other kind of strange stuff that uh, Lawrence Epstein kicked off this press conference with talking about where he was talking about how they're trying to, they're working with the Cleveland clinic. They want to scan people's brains to find out if people are quote unquote predisposed, genetically predisposed to brain injuries. And then they will quote unquote counsel those people out of the sport. And then he's talking about can't do. having something called a quote unquote biological passport. Uh, that that they say will streamline guys doing their medicals and various state athletic commissions. But if I was an employee, sounds an awful lot like they want to have my DNA and medical history on file, which I would not be that into. Uh, so yeah, I think that even though this is a positive step and needs need something that needed to happen uh, in the UFC, uh, it kind of makes you wonder: like, is their power just infinite? Over these independent contractors. Well, yeah, and see, that is the thing about the independent contractor status. And it seems like the UFC is just going to keep pushing it uh, until they get uh, some meaningful push back. I think that this, in combination with the Reebok thing, like that should be enough to to get everybody to realize that these are employees. Like all it's going to take is somebody to really challenge that. And I don't think that the UFC's argument that they're independent contractors would really hold up if somebody started looking at that. And we've seen that in other industries before uh, – where like strip clubs, like they had some in Las Vegas, some in New York, where naturally they, you go straight for the strip club. Where, example. where strippers made the argument that they were not independent contractors, and a bunch of strip clubs had to pay a bunch of uh, back back pay and 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 uh, were hit with some fees and everything to that were in, like in the millions. So I mean, I would be worried about that if I were the UFC. I'm sure they've discussed it internally by now, but like that comment, like. When asked about how this affects the independent contractor status, that this is just a part of being a UFC fighter. Well, for a lot of those guys, as has been pointed out by several people, they're UFC fighters because they signed a contract that had – during a very different climate. They right. signed a contract right. that might have uh, committed them for several years and, and many fights back when they could still wear their own sponsors, back when they they didn't have to tell USADA where they were all the damn time. And now the UFC has just kind of changed it out from under them during the term of their contract. Like I could see how those guys would start to be wondering 
how the hell this happened to them. Right. And my question would be, if you are one of those people who has a pre-existing contract with the UFC that you signed prior to the institution of this more invasive drug testing campaign, let's say you're Frank Mir, you've signed a, a series of contracts with the UFC over the last decade plus, uh, and now they come in and try to add this this drug testing to the middle of a, a current contract that you're on. What if somebody for political reasons or for whatever says, this is a bridge too far, this is an invasion of my privacy, I'm not going to participate in this uh, more intrusive drug testing program. What happens to that person? Uh, can he get released from his contract? Because I'm going to guess no, he cannot. <laughs> well, you know, I think that uh, as far as like public opinion, a lot of guys would be really wary to take the stand on drug testing. Like, yeah, I know. I agree. If you take the stand on the Reebok deal, then I think you get a lot of support. You get a lot of people saying like, yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, fight for your rights there. If you do it on drug testing, it just makes it look like you you want to have more freedom to dope up. Um, so, but I do think that all this stuff kind of coming so close together um, forms a like you could you could make a better collective argument that way by saying like look at all these things that they're doing. Uh, yeah, and they want me to want to get my biological passport, want to scan my brain so they can counsel me out of the sport, um, which. Uh, that's just not something that you can really do if you're the UFC. You can tell the guy that uh, he doesn't have to go home, but he can't stay here. But you can't tell him, you know, that he has to quit fighting necessarily. Yeah. They want you to do your rehab at the quote unquote UFC lab in right. Las Vegas. They want to tell you how to train, how to stretch, what to eat. Uh, there was some pretty weird lingo being thrown around at this press conference, and a, a lot of it immediately got overshadowed because the thing we were all there to really hear about was the drug testing. But uh, it's starting to seem a lot more, um, I guess, holistic than it ever has been before, which, you know, even if they're doing it really earnestly and trying to help everyone with these problems, uh, I think that there are going to be some people that kind of bristle at that. Yeah. And you know what would probably help them with some of their financial problems is not having to be independent contractors and get screwed in tax time that way. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit sad and uh, maybe ironic if, if this drug testing issue is the thing that finally gets fighters to realize that they need either a professional association or a trade union or something like that uh, to try to give them a voice uh, in the, at the negotiating table. Um, but I do think that that is something that we need and, and that's a a direction that I think the sport pretty much has to go. Yeah. And, but it's a tough one, man. There's just so many obstacles to that more so than a lot of other sports, but uh, I don't know. I'm not terribly optimistic of fighters ability to, to join together with one voice very easily. No, nor am I. Uh, it will be interesting to see what happens with the drug testing. It will be interesting to see what happens with the labor issues moving forward. I have a feeling that's going to be a hot button topic of conversation for the next year, maybe more. Uh, and we will be here to talk about it with you. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number three. Ben, are you familiar with the Louis C.K. comedy bit, of course, but maybe? Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, that's kind of how I feel about Cain Velasquez against Fabricio Verdum, because, of course, we all know that Cain Velasquez is the best heavyweight in the world. Uh, he's the, you know, the, the reigning heavyweight champion. He's probably going to go out there and run through Fabricio Verdum and, and 
uh, unify his own title and, and continue to be the UFC heavyweight champion. But maybe our notion of Cain Velasquez as this dominant number one heavyweight in the world is more based on theory at this point than anything else, or at least based on a kind of a distant memory. Because like I said at the top of the show, first of all, this is the first time we'll see Cain Velasquez in action in about 20 months, uh, owing to some injuries. And this will be the first time that we see him fight anyone other than Junior Dos Santos or Bigfoot Silva since he fought Brock Lesnar way back at UFC 121 in October of 2010. As they say, you know, styles make fights in MMA. It's been an awful long time since we saw Cain Velasquez fight anyone with a style besides Junior Dos Santos or Bigfoot Silva. Uh, is there anything to to make of this that we just haven't seen Cain Velasquez uh, fight a very, you know, disparate menu of opponents at this point? Yeah, well, to me, the it's less about the lack of variety in opponents and more about the layoff. That's where the big question comes in for me because that's that's a serious layoff. And I know, like, everybody says the same shit, right? Like, oh, that's not – cage rust isn't real as long as you're, you're going hard and practice and you're training and you're prepared. Like, everybody says the same thing beforehand. And then everybody says more or less the same thing afterwards, which is I was wrong. It's totally real. Like, we've heard that from guys who won. We've heard that from guys who lost. It definitely makes a difference. And it's going to make a difference here. Like, it, it, it's going to affect him somehow. Like, that to me is what makes this seem like – this could be a lot closer fight than a lot of people think. Because you look right now, and Cain Velasquez is like a 5-1 to one favorite, uh, according to most odds makers, which the layoff alone, plus, you know, Fabricio Verdum, we've seen in recent fights, that that guy's game has really, really rounded out in the last few years. Uh, I would not be terribly surprised to see him go out there and beat Cain Velasquez. But then I think you get into the question of, like, does that mean that Fabricio Verdum is therefore the baddest man on the planet because that somehow seems harder for us to to come to. I yeah, I, it does. And I think I agree with you that the layoff is significant. But also I feel like if Verdum goes out there and does something weird, like I guess not weird, but does something wild, like catches Velasquez in a sub, catches him in a triangle choke or something and, and, and taps him out, that we are going to look back on the recent history of Cain Velasquez and be like, Oh, well, he hasn't really fought anybody like that since he fought, you know, Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira at UFC 110. Uh, and I think that that's going to make us think a little bit differently uh, about his legacy. At this point, he's only fought two guys who are currently in the UFC heavyweight top 10. He's fought Junior Dos Santos and he's fought Ben Rothwell, who's number nine. Aside from that, he hasn't even really fought any of these current top contenders. Uh, so I think like if, if he were to lose this and I agree with you that I feel like five to one favorite is kind of crazy in this fight. Uh, not only will it make us think a little bit differently about Cain Velasquez as this dominant heavyweight, but it will be hard. I think for people to fully embrace Fabrizio Verdum as, as like the new world number one, just because there will be a tendency to be like, well, we hadn't seen Cain Velasquez in 20 months, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I don't know, maybe that's what's contributing to it. Like, we've heard over and over again, people keep pointing out, like, how it seems almost like an afterthought, right? The UFC Heavyweight Championship's going up for grabs this weekend, Yeah, Chad. in Mexico City, and they've kind of bent over backwards to to get Kane this fight in Mexico City and to try to uh, break into the, to, to the fight market down there, um, which is another thing that makes you think that this thing could just go up in flames, right? Because historically speaking, that's always been a bad idea to try to get your big star a, a 
the big break, like to try to jump through all these hoops to make it happen. That person almost always loses that fight. Uh, but, uh, yeah, man, this is, uh, this, this is, uh, going to be one that I think is going to be interesting and has been kind of undersold a little bit, maybe, uh, overshadowed by Jose Aldo and Conor McGregor coming up the, the, you know, on July 11th. Yeah, definitely a lot more promotional muscle put into that one. Uh, and I don't know, maybe hoping that the, the heavyweight championship sells itself, but it does feel like it contributes to this feeling like we haven't seen Kane Velasquez in so long. And I don't want to say we've forgotten about him, but we have, we, we have suffered the, like a certain like drop in interest due to his absence. Like we used to talk about him a lot about being, is he the baddest man on the planet? Uh, the, especially the way he fights at heavyweight, which you don't really see from a whole lot of different heavyweights. And then just because of the layoff and we're just forced to do so many other things with the heavyweight division and we kind of sunk into this um, kind of low-grade malaise when it came to heavyweights. There were a few interesting guys out there and then uh, a lot of junk. Uh, And now we have what on paper looks like an awesome fight, like Fabricio Verdum right now, kind of at the height of his powers against Cain Velasquez, where we don't exactly know what to make of him coming off the layoff. And it just does seem like it's really flying under the radar. And... One way or another, though, it seems like it's going to force some kind of major change like in our perspective. If Cain Velasquez comes out, out there after a really long layoff like that uh, and fights a guy like Fabricio Verdum, who is on a roll right now, and then just steamrolls him, well, then just screw it. Make him up the, the greatest heavyweight ever plaque right now, right? I mean, what else do you want him to do after that? But then if Fabricio Verdum comes out there and beats him, it's I think it's still going to be tough for people to say, like, to, to totally buy Fabricio Verdum. Yeah, and we have learned the hard way over the last several years that it can be dangerous to underestimate Fabricio Verdum, right? He got run out of the UFC in 2008 when he got knocked out by a debuting Junior Dos Santos, and since then he's run off like a, an 8-1 record, and his lone loss is that kind of stinker of a fight to Alistair Overeem in the in the quarterfinals of the Strike Force heavyweight grand, the ill-fated Strike Force heavyweight Grand Prix in doing 2011. the old uh, getting my guard routine. That, yeah. that that one could have gone so many different ways when you think about it. Do you feel like that fight has anything to do with the current maybe inability of people to fully buy into Fabrizio Verdum? Like we saw him, he didn't get outclassed, outclassed certainly by Overeem there, but but like he got decisively beaten in kind of a bad fight. And do you think that like the memory of him? scooting around the cage trying to entice over him into his guard has anything to do with like kind of undermining his image yeah i mean that doesn't help but uh, that was not a fight like when they were exchanging on the feet he was doing pretty well uh it just seemed like maybe that was a fabricio verdum who didn't quite believe enough yet in his stand-up skills and still thought that he was uh that that old dude from pride who basically had to get you to to uh, consent to a ground battle one way or another I don't know. I mean, maybe some of it is just that uh, it's hard for us. Like with Cain Velasquez, like he kind of burst on the scene, uh, just smashed his way through everybody, had that one knockout loss to Junior Dos Santos, which he pretty convincingly avenged twice. Uh, So I think it's a little easier like that Cain Velasquez went from a guy who we heard about as maybe the next champ to a guy who seemed like he's definitely going to be the next champ to the guy who was the champ. Uh, And so there was never any, any... step backwards and Fabricio Verdum had a little bit more of a more growing pains more development going on in his game so maybe that's part of it um I don't know I mean I still think though 
you you match that guy up with his set of skills against a Kane Velasquez who uh, is, is going to have to deal with some kind of cage rust, and you could do a lot worse than to take a, a four to one underdog bet on the go horse right now. Yeah, I think the smart money is probably still on Kane Velasquez, and the odds are that come next week we're, we're talking about him still being the UFC champion. But maybe. But maybe. But maybe. Let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, you will no doubt recall last week's Just Saying Stuff. Uh, oh, when do I ever. When I mentioned uh, Ronda Rousey auctioning off her 2005 Honda. Oh, right. Uh, I actually totally do remember that one. Yes. <laughs> well, I the... The bidding, uh, I I read about it on TMZ. I think the bidding got up there at around like twenty grand or something. A little, That's crazy. A little high for for a car for a Ronda Honda. Ronda Rousey monetizing her own slovenliness <laughs> for a Honda with a bunch of stuff glued to the dashboard that has one hundred fifty six thousand miles on it needs a new transmission. Uh, but according to TMZ, uh, she said about the car that she loves it very much. And hopes the next owner will be someone who will love it and respect it and not some crazy super fan who jerks off to it every day. Now, while I understand where she's coming from on that, I'm just saying, once you sell the car, that's not your choice to make anymore, is it, Chad? Wow, buyer's rights. That's between the crazy person who buys it and the car. That's one of the things that, I mean, and also, if they're paying like 20 grand or something for your... uh, 10-year-old Honda with 156,000 miles on it, there's no way they're not a crazy person. Like, that's that's what we're talking about here. That You're you're cashing in on their craziness. You don't get to then afterwards tell them, you know, what they can or can't do with that car. You're, you're selling that right away. I'm just saying. Just saying. Wow, Ben Foles coming out strongly in favor of consumers' rights. Look, Chad, if you want to jerk off in or to your car, that's your business. Damn that right. is your business, Chad Dundas. Damn right. This is America. And I strongly suspect you might have been the person who, who placed these bids. No comment. Ben, uh, I don't know how much of this you caught since you watched the fights via the magic of DVR, but this seemed to be the weekend where the MMA community collectively realized that the UFC has been telling us for years now not to worry about fighter pay and that it, it pays its fighters a lot of money. Thank you very much. And then almost every weekend, a bunch of guys win fights and then get on the mic and talk about how poor they are. And they literally beg their millionaire and billionaire employers for what amounts to pocket change. Uh, Francisco Rivera did it this last week. Brian Ortega did it this last week. It seemed to be kind of a uh, a tipping point in that department. And it's it's starting to seem like those two things couldn't be true at the same time. Uh, and this past weekend, I started to wonder, how do the guys in the UFC feel, the guys who own the UFC, when their employees go on TV and literally beg them for money? Do they get off on it? Do they think it's weird? Do they think it's a bad look for the sport? Because I'm going to tell you, it is a bad look for the sport. Uh, I don't know what you would think if this were the first time you had ever seen mixed martial arts and you turned on Fox Sports one and you saw all these guys beating the heck out of each other and then afterwards somebody put a mic in their face and they talked about how poor they were and they needed to buy their kids shoes and they wanted to get one of these discretionary bonuses just a a bad look for the sport 
I'm just saying. Just saying. Do those people know maybe they can get like a job as a blackjack dealer at the Palms or something? I hear Dana White tips those people pretty well. Yeah, that's a lucrative gig yeah. over there at the Palms. They don't even have to beg. You get by Ronda Rousey's car style tips. Nice. You work over there in one of the high-end rooms. You creep. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at UFC 188, provided I can watch it. We're going to see what happens with the impending birth of my son. Uh, but we'll be back next week to check in on that and look ahead to whatever happens after that. I assume some kind of UFC fight night will be happening the sure. following Saturday. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Is it time for us to talk boy names here for your son? I would appreciate all the input that I that I can get. Uh, Hezekiah. Done. Okay. Hezekiah done. Wow, that's a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Go, I was going to go with Ezekiel, but Hezekiah. What's, what's short for Hezekiah? Hezekiah? It's personal, clearly. Hezekiah.